Genesis chapter 34, and while you turn there, I need to preface this text. This is um, one of the most unsettling passages in all of the Bible. Yay! It's a passage in which there is some very awful things that happen, and it's a passage that... Um, when you read it, what ought to come to mind is why is this even in the Bible? It's a difficult passage, and it's one of those passages that if a non-believer opened his Bible and read this verse, this passage, it would surely only be by a work of the Spirit that they saw anything good out of it. Um, so, uh, just prefacing, I don't have any wise excuses for this passage. I don't have any quippy sayings or anything clever to make you go, oh, that's why it's here. No, we're just going to read it and we're going to talk about it. And it might not settle well um, with you at first. Uh, there are some things that we will see that will hopefully make it worth um, your attention <clears throat> Maybe even make it something that you can point to for the joy of Jesus Christ. But this is a very difficult passage. So just as a pastor, as a preacher, I just want you to know that this is not an easy passage for me to teach, nor is it an easy passage for me to admit is even in the Bible. So, let's read together Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and he spoke tenderly to her, so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Go get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in the livestock with the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. And the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and a gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because she had, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. 
they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored uh, of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take our daughters, let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us uh, to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised will not their livestock and their property and all the all their beasts be ours only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us and all who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out to the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt, while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away, and the sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and the plundered the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones, and all their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought great trouble on me, by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his words. Now, we're small enough for me to ask a question and get an answer, so what's missing? When we read through that, what did you not hear? God. Nowhere. It's not in there. It's not, the word isn't mentioned. Religious, a religious symbol is used that is directly connected to him, and nothing is said about him. No plea, no turn, no call. First thing to notice. It's emphasized. Look at verse 20 of chapter 33. There he erected an altar and called it God, the God, uh, God, my God, the God of Israel. Then in verse, in chapter 35, what's the first word? God. 
God said to Jacob. The last word in 33 is God's name, God. And then the first word in 35 is God. And yet, he's not mentioned in this chapter at all. The first thing we can see is when you take your eyes off of the Lord, bad things happen because of you. It's our fault. It's not, I'm not saying bad things happen like hurricanes come, natural disasters. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is when we take our eyes off the Lord, we miss the point. We miss the point of everything. Second thing to note before we dive into the meat of the text is in chapter 28, verse 20, when Jacob had had the vision of the ladder going up and down. Listen to what Jacob says in response to this vision. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, this is chapter 28, verse 20, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. So that's the condition he puts on God. So that I will come again to my father's house in peace. There's the agreement. I'm going to come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar. This is at Bethel, not Shechem. This stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me. I will give a full tenth to you. So there's the vow. Jacob is planning on going to Laban's. He stays there 20 years. The end of the vow is I'm going to come back here. This shall be God's house. I will come back here. This is where Israel will reside. Now, back in 34, chapter 34, verse 18 through the end, it says this. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Not Bethel. Not where he was, not his father's land. Not the place where his father was. This is Shechem. There's a totally different group of people living here. This is where the Canaanites live. <clears throat> Which is the land of Canaan on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. So, so Jacob stops here and he buys land to stay here. He did not go all the way to Bethel like he was supposed to, like the vow promised. So, having those two things in mind, that God's name is not mentioned in this chapter, and that this is the result of not obeying, not fulfilling the vow he made. Now, God, uh, to be clear, God didn't tell Jacob, you have to make me a vow to come back to Bethel. God didn't tell Jacob, this is required of you. Jacob did that all on his own. Got excited and made a promise. This is consistently a problem through the Old Testament. People get excited, they make a promise, and it goes badly. There's another story in the book of Judges where one of the judges says, if you'll give me victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. And he's thinking it's going to be a sheep or maybe a pet. And it's his daughter. Comes up to greet him. Awful story. So, here, we have yet another time 
that a man has made a vow to God and has then failed to keep his own vow to God. So much has he failed to keep his own vow to God that he has taken up residence in Canaan under the authority of the Canaanite government. That's what Hamor and Shechem are. They're Canaanite, basically warlords, kings in this area. They rule the area. That's a small kingdom at this point. It's just one city, but it's still Canaanites. And they are living here, and they are pagan. They're not Israel. So, with that in mind, let's look at this horrible story. Chapter 34, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob. Note what he's emphasizing. Dinah, this is Leah's daughter. He doesn't say Jacob's daughter. This is Leah's daughter. He, he, she bore to Jacob. So Jacob, from the outset, the author's trying to tell you, Jacob doesn't care about this kid. There's one kid Jacob seems to care about. Joseph, Rachel's son. He doesn't seem to care about any of the others. He treats the others as if they're kind of stepchildren. And this is no exception. Dinah is not treated with kindness. She is kind of ignored by her father. Uh, so much is she ignored by her father that she goes out to see the women of the land. She goes out unprotected by herself. Now, this woman, probably somewhere around 16, 15, 16, like this is a teenager. She is not uh, even of marrying age, so she might have been younger. And she is going out. Uh, her brothers are in the field working, and she is going out unprotected. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, it's emphasized there that he is not related to, to Jacob in any way. He is not of the Jewish line. He is not a cousin. He is not an uncle. He's not part of Laban's group. He's not uh, anywhere near. Uh, he is a Hivite. He is a different race altogether. And he says, the prince of the land, so this is a king, saw her. He's a prince. He owns the land. The city's named after him. He seized her and laid with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Shechem treats her with disrespect and um, takes advantage of her. And said, that's just as polite as I'm going to It's the only way I'm going to say it. Stretch it. It's not just taking advantage of her. It's much worse. Humiliates her. And then he falls in love with her. Now, I would argue that's what we see in our culture today. This is what happens today. Men take advantage of a young woman, and then they say, hey, this worked out, let's get married. This is wrong. We need to say it's wrong. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. Marriage is the covenant basis to have that. Not married, shouldn't have it. So, here we see uh, Shechem taking advantage, the world taking advantage of this young woman. 
And Hamor then is told by Shechem to go get this woman for him, for his wife. Now, verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Jacob is still a cowardly man. He's deceptive. He's still manipulative. Even though God has now given him a limp, and he has started to see the name of God, he has started to understand who God is, he is still wicked and deceptive. And so he comes before, Hamor, Hamor comes before him and says, my son wants your daughter. Jacob knows what has happened. And Jacob says nothing. And why? Because he doesn't have the tactical advantage. What's the problem with this? The problem is Jacob has the tactical advantage. It's called the righteousness of God. It's called God's presence. Standing up for what is right. When given, this is one of the things that we have seen over and over with Jacob, when given the opportunity to deceive or manipulate and maybe make things go your own way, or be honest and upfront and let God defend you. Always go with honesty. Don't be Jacob. Always go with honesty. Always speak the truth. It does not help your case to lie. It has not helped Jacob once. Indeed, he's broken this vow. The same way he, uh, polit- though it's politically correct, the way he handled Esau and said, Ah, uh, let me go, I'll come in my own time. Though that was politically correct and it was culturally acceptable, it was still a lie. It was still lying to Esau. And though he was able to walk away, and though everybody in the story understands what he's actually saying, it was still a lie. And he should have just said, no, I'm not going to go. Just like here, he comes to this point and he's made a vow to God, and now he's breaking that vow and stopping outside of a Canaanite city and making his home with the Canaanites, rather than going to where God has told him he will be and he will bless him. So, he comes and and Jacob holds his peace like the rat that he is, unwilling to go into the confrontation, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. It's also important that when there's a problem, the one who caused the issue here the Canaanite acts with more integrity than the guy that's supposed to know God. The one that's supposed to know God should have immediately gone to Hamor and Shechem and said, this is wrong, we won't stand for it, this is not okay. And instead, what's he do? Well, I'm going to let him come to me, I'm going to try to manipulate the situation, I'm going to wait till my sons are all here, and I've got a full army, that I can discuss with, that we can make a plot. Hamor comes out first and honestly acts as honorably as he could. Look at what happens. Hamor is as honorable as he can be. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, and the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done this outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing should not be done. So, let's pause there before Hamor talks and recognize the situation. The sons of Jacob, who have been raised by this father, they're good shepherds, they're hard workers, but they're equally rotten, come 
in from the field, angry and furious. And Hamor goes to Jacob and tries to smooth everything over. Recognizing that this is not good, but maybe we can fix it. Jacob's sons are indignant and angry and furious because this should not be done. This whole exchange should never have happened. And why should it have never happened? Because Dinah is of the people of Israel. And this is not how you treat the covenant people of Israel. Covenant people of God. They recognize not only is this an affront towards Dinah, it's also an affront to their family, it's an affront to their name, and, indeed, it's an affront to their religious practices. This is wrong. So, they come in angry. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. So Hamor immediately tries to smooth it over. Listen, he loves your daughter. He loves Dinah. And he, please, give her to him as a wife. Notice he doesn't mention the infidelity. He doesn't mention the the uh, wickedness. He doesn't mention the humiliation. He says, let's let's move past that and let's give her to him as a wife. Again, I think we see this a lot in today's culture, right? It's uh, We have existed in sin. Let's just forget the sin for a minute, and let's just move on and do the right thing now. No repentance here on Hamor's part. No confession to God. No call for repentance from the people of Israel to him. No discussion of this was wrong, and Shechem needs to repent. None of that. Instead, Hamor thinks we can just, you know, let's just look past our past transgressions and move forward. Move forward here. How many times have you known couples that have done this? They just forgot about their past transgressions and decided we're going to do the right thing now. There's some nobility in that, right? Comparatively speaking. There is, honestly. There's some nobility. This this Canaanite king is more righteous than Jacob in the story. Because he's trying to do the right thing. But, as I tell my kids, apology without repentance is not an apology. Hamor wants apology without repentance. He wants moving forward without repentance. He doesn't want to say, your God, uh, you know, I know this is wrong and what's happened is wrong. Let, forgive me. Forgive me. Let's move forward now. Instead, he says, you know, my son loves your daughter. He loves her. And yeah, that happened. But like, he loves your daughter. So this is an act of love. It's an act of love. Indeed, what he's doing is an act of love. And so, he says this, and then he, he proposes here, verse 9, make marriages with us. Give us your daughters. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. So, Hamor says, "Make give us your daughters. Make covenant with us. 
be with us and watch what he says. You get land and property and people. What does that sound like? Land, property, and people. That's what God promised him. You get land, property, and people if you stay with me. You stay with me, you get land, property, and people. Immediately, what should have gone off in Jacob's head was, oh no. No, 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 no. That's the promise God gave me. Oh, where am I? In his head, what should have happened was, back away slowly. This is going to go badly. They're asking me to make covenant with them when I'm already covenanted to God, and he promised me that over in Bethel. Why am I here? Immediately, his response should have been, no, you've done the wrong, you've done the wrong thing, you repent, and it immediately should have been to take care of his daughter, and with his sons, to retrieve his daughter and get out of there, get away. But what he does instead is he agrees to it. We know Jacob agrees to it because he scolds his sons for what they do. So, make marriages with us. Verse 10. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property. Shechem also said to her father, notice it doesn't say his name, Jacob, said to her father, this is how absentee he is. He's her dad. That's He's not around, not present. Said to her father, let me find favor in your eyes, And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So, he says, I will pray, I will pay whatever you want. You guys, so this is now Shechem. Hamor has said his piece, tried to make a covenant. And now Shechem goes, listen, I'll pay everything. I'll pay whatever you want. I want this woman. I'm the prince. I'll pay everything for her. Now, uh, you need to understand in the ancient Near East, there was a set bride price. This is abnormal. He's going above and beyond. He's offering more than the bride price. He's saying, you name it, I'll give it to you. I want this woman. So, he... Uh, he proposes this to the father and the sons. Notice who answers. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So this is the setup. The narrator is telling you this is not honest. This is wicked. He's telling you from the outset this is wicked. Just in case you got any ideas that this might be a good idea, it's not. He answers deceitfully, verse 14, they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. That's true. That's a true statement for them. That's true. So we're just lining out what's true and what's untrue. That's true. We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree to you, that you will become as we are, every male among you, being circumcised. That is untrue. They will not agree. They should not agree, and they cannot agree. They can't. This is a violation of their covenant agreement with God. They wouldn't take wives from other 
other cultures, that they wouldn't blend themselves in. So, verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. Again, they can't promise that. They can't say they'll become one people. They're not allowed to. So they say, we'll give you our daughters, we'll take yours, we'll dwell with you, verse 17. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And that's what they should have done in the first place. Taken Dinah and left. Should have gone. Should have left, but they didn't. So Hamor is pleased with the words there in verse 18. And Hamor's son Shechem is pleased. And the young man did not delay in the thing because he was delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, um, if you jump down to verse 26, you see that Hamor and Shechem never gave Dinah back to Jacob. Dinah has been a prisoner. Let's just recognize the situation. If you have a sister who's being held captive by a man who has humiliated her, even if he claims to love her, just for a moment, feel the fury. I would be furious. If you have a daughter that's held captive by a man who humiliated her, yeah. Let's see a guy survive if he does that to one of my kids. It's not gonna happen. I'm going to jail. That's that's just the way it is. So the thing that ought to strike us here is where is Jacob? Nothing. Dinah is held captive, and he's done nothing. His sons are about to exact revenge, and Jacob is nowhere in the plan. Why? Because he has forgotten the God that he serves. He has forgotten the God who provides for him. He has forgotten his name is Israel. And so, he says nothing. Shechem and Hamor go to the city gate. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the city, came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters for wives and let us Give them our daughters, only on this condition will the men agree with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city to listen to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of his city. So Hamor and Shechem decide they're going to take on this covenant sign 
of obedience to God. They don't know that, though. They think this is some sort of racial, physical thing. They don't know that this is the sign of the covenant with God. That's not been brought up at all. So see what Jacob's sons do. They take the covenant sign of God's peace on earth. The covenant sign of God's blessing to the nations. And they turn it into a curse. Oh, that we would never take the word of God and use it to curse people. Oh, that we would never use the word of God as a weapon. That it would always be the sign of peace and love and blessing to those in our world. Jacob and his sons, in particular Jacob's sons here, plot to destroy and plot to kill and murder. They don't merely deceive others, but they use the name of God to do it. This is tragic. This is extremely tragic. So, on the third day, verse 25, when they were sore and the sons of Jacob, Simeon, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secured and killed all the men. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So, uh, the oldest son is Reuben, and he's not there. Reuben is the one also that when they're about to kill Joseph, argues, no, no, don't kill him, let's sell him into slavery. So Reuben seems to be of the character uh, that says, essentially non-violent. He's not necessarily the one that wants to fight and kill. Two second oldest sons, Levi and Simeon. The future line of the priest, Levi, <laughs> yay! Um, the Levitical order comes from this guy, and Simeon, the brute. Uh, they are later given a anti-blessing by Jacob at the end of the book, where he says, you are uh, you are wild, angry. It's very similar to Ishmael's blessing. Uh, wild donkey of a man whose hand is against everybody, but theirs is you are angry, you're wild, you'll rule by the rod. You're not, you're not kind or gentle. So Levi and Simeon live out this, and they come, and in their righteous indignation, don't get me wrong, this is what they did was wicked, but it is coming from a stance of, I want to defend my sister. I can't blame them. Personally, I don't know that I would act any different if my father was this wicked either. And they stand for their sister and they murder men in the city. They deceive them and they go and destroy them. And the reason that this is sad is not because they stood up for their sister. The reason that this is sad is because they took the covenant sign of peace of God and they turned it into an act of war. And they refuse to trust the Lord. What should they have done? Their father didn't act. What should they have done? Should have gone, gotten their sister, and left. They should have done. Gone, gotten their sister, and moved. What they do is much, much worse. 
they defile a city, and they murder all the men. And then they don't stop there. They killed Hamor and his sons, uh, his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob. So now all the brothers get involved. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and the plundered of the city, and they plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. What these men just did was destroy families. They murdered people. They didn't, this isn't an army. This wasn't a battle. This wasn't two agreed sides fighting over a plot of land or engaging in some sort of war with each other. This was sons of Jacob murdering an entire city. And then after they killed all the men, taking all the women and children and plundering them, which means what it sounds like. This is a passage of the Bible where if an atheist read this passage, this part, they'd go, how is this good? How is this good? How is this book good? Indeed, they'd be right to ask. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. What? You're going to be mad at this because they bring trouble on you? Can you feel the anger? If, if I'm Levi, I might stab my dad. This is wrong. Are you kidding me? I just saved my sister. We're richer now. And you're going to be mad at me for it? Because you feel unsafe? You see, two of us just killed a city. You think they can handle us? This, these are the things that would go through my head if I were them. Jacob said, you, you've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. They are his household. Dinah is his household. It's already destroyed. It's already destroyed. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? They respond to Jacob with righteous indignation over their sister. His daughter. And he is worried about his reputation before handling it. This is, this is tragic. So, my friend, the atheist, we're going to just label my friend that. This is an ambiguous term. I am speaking about somebody specific, but we're not going to mention his name. Though I have many friends that are like this. So this is going to be a broad descriptor. You'll probably relate to it. My friend, the atheist, will ask me, how is this story good? How does this at all say that Christianity is valuable or, or good for the world. How is this good? And I will respond by saying it's not. 
This is not good. Indeed, this story is not good for the world, but it's what we see every day. The Bible is real. This is what we see in politics, isn't it? The thing that Jacob's brothers do to the city is the exact same thing we watch politicians do to each other on a massive scale. They claim the moral high ground, and when you are weakened by their claim of the moral high ground, they destroy you. It's exactly what Jacob's sons do. This is a moral issue. You need to be circumcised to join us. These people give in to their moral high ground, and then they destroy the enemy by denying and defiling that moral high ground. Case in point, we pray against abortion all the time. My friends, my friend the atheist, will argue that um, I don't care about life because I have a conservative vote, he assumes. We've never actually talked about any kind of voting that I do, but he'll assume that because I'm a pastor in South Texas, I vote conservative on everything, which is only partially true. I am a pastor in South Texas, but I don't vote conservative on everything. Just throw that out there. I vote conservative on almost everything. And so, so he, he will, uh, besmirge me and yell at me and tell me that I don't care about slavery because I voted for foreign policy that, uh, disregards the suffering in some other country and he'll name some obscure country where some obscure policy has affected some obscure thing. I don't care about life. You can't say that you care about life and do that. To claim the moral high ground. I'll start researching the policy. And I'll go, you know, that's a good point. Like, that policy really did need to be done differently. And it's some obscure thing, like buried in some news report somewhere. And then he'll argue, well, since I don't care about life there, why am I caring about life over on the abortion issue? Now, this is the same thing Jacob's brothers do. And it's the same thing his sons do. They, they stand up and they claim more high ground. You have to be circumcised to be part of us. And then they murder everybody. And they go, we're justified in it because they were wicked. No, you're not. You're not justified in it. You're not justified in it. You were, you were wicked all on your own. You were wicked in response. The answer, by the way, to the atheist who does that is to go, yeah, but abortion is murder. Ends the argument. You're murdering people. We're done. They're not analogous. A pol- an obscure policy doesn't negate the fact that that's murder. Instead of playing politics, we trust in the Lord and we're honest. When given the opportunity to deceive and win the political argument, or to be honest and lose, I'd rather lose rather lose the debate and be honest and faithful to the Lord. So, we see this all the time. We see the world then trying to make things right. I have done multiple weddings of people who have lived together and had kids together in a house. And they have lived promiscuously that whole time. Sleeping around and doing all kinds of wicked things. And then they come together and they go, well, you know what? We've been living together for seven or eight years and we... We have children and we have, uh, we, neither one of us is faithful, but you know what? We ought to, we ought to go get married. 
And I'm in a pickle, because I'm like, yeah, you need to get married. You, but you also need to be faithful to each other. And so we'll do counseling, and we'll sit with these couples, and, and we will love them. And, and a lot of them get married, and they're, they, they do great. And they grow, and they, and they learn, and they stop being unfaithful, and they stop being promiscuous, and they actually increase. <laughs> and then a lot of them remain wicked in their marriage, because all it is is a placebo for them, and all it is is covering. So I don't know that there's a right answer to that, by the way, in case you're wondering, like, what's the pattern that you have to follow? I don't know that there's a right answer. I think they should get married because they're acting like they're married anyway. But there's also the issue of, well, you're sinful, wicked people who need to repent. I don't know. This passage doesn't solve that problem for you. There you go. I just threw another problem out for you. Um, Then finally, we see this happen in our world all the time. Men who claim that their wicked deeds are approved of by God because other men did not act. Because other men did not obey. Therefore, I am approved of in my wickedness. So where is God in this? Well, he's in chapter 33, the very last verse. He's in chapter 35, the very next verse. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. God comes to Jacob and goes, Listen, you made a vow. It was your vow. Go to Bethel. Go and stay there. Remember, Jacob owns the land. He bought the land there. He owns that land outside of Shechem. That's where he lives. He built, he's built his tents. He built a bunch of booths for his livestock. They are settled. We don't know how much time has passed in the 20 years, uh, after the 20 year period with Laban. We don't know how much time has passed. There's significant amount for him to have bought land and settled there. And so God comes to him and says, get up and go to Bethel. Now, I don't know where you are in the story, if you relate to anybody in the story, if you have connected with any of these men in this story. I don't want to connect with anybody in the story. right? As we read, I don't want, I don't want to read this analogous to me ever. This is a story in the Bible that when I'm reading the Bible to my kids, I just kind of go... I read it fast, and then I go to the next chapter. And if they ask a question, I go, we'll talk about it when you're older. And I keep going. This is a difficult passage. Yet, I want you to hear the grace of God. These men destroy so many symbols of God's love. They destroy the father and son relationship. They ignore the patriarchal structure that was set up for them by God and Jacob being the head of the household, being the, the birthright holder, being the first, the one who gets the right of the firstborn, they, they have uh, destroyed that whole structure and that the sons are the ones who are leading the way. Here, they have destroyed and defiled the covenant of circumcision. Good grief, they even destroy the three-day imagery. Right? Three days, 
These men are wounded, and they're supposed to be resurrection. And what comes after three days here? Death. This is the three-day imagery of the Old Testament that's done constantly. Three days in the belly of the well, then resurrection. Three days in the belly of the fish, then resurrection. Three days down and, and rise up again. Three days journey and there's salvation at the end of it. This is an image that God is used and, and they defile even that. Even the image that they didn't know existed yet, they defile it. And here, God is gracious. Look at what God says to Jacob there. God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. He doesn't say make an altar to me. He doesn't say make an altar to the God of Israel. He goes, hey, remember that that promise you made to make an altar at Bethel. Go fulfill your vow. If you keep staying here, trying to make it work on your own, it's just going to backfire over and over and over. So where is God in the story? God is right there. Right there. He doesn't leave Jacob and Jacob's sons ever. For goodness sakes, he's even there with Shechem. He's even present there. He's around. God didn't leave. But we watched here what happened in Romans 1. What Paul describes. And God slowly removed his restraining hand and gave them over to their own wickedness. That's what's happened. God has removed his restraining hand, and instead of intervening in this story, like he did with Laban showing up at night, hey, don't touch Jacob. Like he did with Abimelech, hey, don't touch his wife. Instead of intervening, he removes his restraining hand, and Jacob suffers the consequences of breaking the vow to God. Now, Hebrews talks about this God as loving his children and disciplining his children. To call this discipline is to cheapen what's happened. This is not simply discipline. But the word for us here, the application point for us, is that if we persist in denying our covenant with Christ, if we persist in sin, private or otherwise, if we persist in not obeying where he has called us to go, things will go badly by way of discipline. We will make poor decisions. We will see ourselves drown. And God will stand next to us and go, hey, get up and go to Bethel. Get up and go to where you are supposed to go. Get up and do what you are supposed to do. You told me that you would do that. Get up and go do it. And make an altar there. Pick up where you left off, Jacob, and go. So, when the atheist asks you, where is God in this? You say, he's at the end of it. He's at the beginning of it. 
And he didn't leave anybody in the story. By way of encouragement, I remember sweeping the floor at Michael's Arts and Crafts. One of, one of the four jo- three jobs I had, one of the three jobs I had in North Carolina. Sweeping the floor at Michael's Arts and Crafts, and a guy comes up to me and goes, so you talk a lot about this sovereign God who's always present and always active. What, so what do you have to say to me about it? So, you know, I don't know where that's coming from. So I, I, well, you know, I mean, he's sovereign and he can save and he can rescue and he, you know, you, we're dead in sin and he brings us life. We just trust him. You know, and I'm pleading with the guy like, do you trust, can you trust in this savior who would die for his cover over your wrongs with his own life? And I go into that and he says, well, here's my question. I was on, we had just come back from Thanksgiving. He said, um, I I was on Thanksgiving break. He's a college student. Um, I was on Thanksgiving break, and and uh, I was with my friend, car, best friend in the whole world. We got into a wreck, and my friend died. Where was your God? Sleeping the floor. Those of you who know my personality know that I'm sweeping the floor. So I looked at him. I stopped. Put my broom down. Again, those of you who know my personality know that that's a work of the Spirit. Put my broom down. I looked at him and I said, um, I don't know about your friend. I don't know anything about him. I'm not, I'm, I don't know him. I don't know, I barely know you. We work together. That's about it. I said, but... I can promise you this. God was not far away from your friend. And sometimes when God seems silent and everything is going wrong, we just need to get through it to see that He has not been silent. And that he is still present. So, I would encourage you with that reminder that I gave that young man. The rest of the story, by the way, for that young man is he went back to the back. I took up his, I told him, look, I know you're supposed to sweep the other half of the store. How about I sweep the whole floor because I was trying to get rid of him so I could finish my job. Because that's my personality. And I said, how about I sweep the whole floor. You go read the book of Galatians. And we talk about it afterwards. I swept the whole floor. He went back to the back, sat down, read the book of Galatians, and didn't talk to me that night. I saw him a week later. Uh, he showed up at my church. And I said, what happened? And he said, I went home that night. I read the book of Galatians. And I believe the stuff you're talking about. And I know that God now. When we are honest that this life is rough, and that things here are not good, and that God is the only way that, that you can survive, this is what happens. Salvation comes to those who the word of the Lord is given. When given the choice to manipulate and win an argument, or to be honest and go, I don't understand why Genesis 34 is always there. I don't get it, but I know that God shows up at the end of it. To be honest and to let that stand, that's where salvation is, when we trust the Lord to handle it. 
We trust the Lord to handle it. Let's pray together, and then we'll uh, delight in his presence in communion. Father, we love you, and we trust you in all things. Be glorified as we remember your body broken for us and your blood poured out for us. Lord, when we come to these passages that we have no idea what to do with, that seem to paint your people in such a wicked light, Lord, remind us of the grace that you give us in Jesus Christ, in his body broken and his blood poured out, and our rescue in him. We love you. Amen.